Hello, and welcome back to the Clavio Data Science Podcast. If this is your first time joining us, I hope you enjoy your stay. If you're returning, welcome back. This month on the podcast, we are doing something a little bit different from usual. Usually, in a month, I will bring in a panel of a few people. We'll talk about a single topic, and I'll ask them a range of questions. This month, I'm talking to a lot of people on our team, and I'm asking them a single question. It's January. A new year is beginning, and I'm wondering, how was 2020 in data science for you? What did you learn last year? If you had to sum up the coolest things that you learned about data science in 2020 into a single factoid, into a single idea, how would you sum it up? In essence, I'm asking them, what was the coolest data science thing that you learned in 2020? You'll hear those answers from a variety of people during this hour. Tommy, thank you for joining us. What was the most interesting data science thing that you learned about in 2020? Thanks, Michael. I, I think the answer has to be AlphaFold. Um, so for those that don't know, um, this is a um, uh, was uh, released by Google's uh, DeepMind, and um, it kind of doesn't doesn't quite solve, but is a huge step forward in what's called the, the protein folding problem in uh, computational biology. So the, um, I don't know if uh, you might remember folding at home, which is, was a big thing in the early 2000s, uh, which kind of popularized this, at least for me. Um, so the idea is if you have a string, uh, a protein string, right? So proteins are made out of, are just a chain of amino acids. Um, and you can find, figure out what those amino acids are. Um, going from that to, um, the shape of yeah. the protein. Which um, is important because the shape of the protein actually is what controls what it does, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so like, um, because pro proteins are like, you know, they're, they're kind of the active agent in so many different um, biological processes. Um, and so they're, they're central to understanding um, uh, different diseases from, from genetic disorders like Huntington's and um, uh, other degenerative uh, disorders, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, as as well as viruses. So, like obviously, yeah. COVID is <laughs> one of the ones we talk yeah. about now. Um, and so, uh, to really figure out what is going on in a lot of these like underlying biological pro processes, mm -hmm. you need to know. Okay, what? Okay, we have this this protein. We know it's um, amino acid. Can we figure out um, what the shape of this is? Mm -hmm. um, so that, like you said, that, that tells you what the, um, uh, uh, the function of that protein is, how it's going to react to other things. Mm -hmm. And it also really helps with um, drug discovery. So if you know the shape yeah. of something, you know what kinds of drugs are going to be able to, to interact with it. So it's huge there. So what, what um, AlphaFold is, so previously people have just kind of like tried to brute force this problem mm -hmm. by making these incredibly complex physical models. That's what folding at home was. It was kind of like this gamification of it where we, um, uh, it was provided to a bunch of users and you'd use your like at home computer, like kind of uh, farm out your computational power to um, help with uh, uh, com computing these uh, protein folds. Um, AlphaFold is a deep neural net, which mm. um, the uh, uh, 
details of exactly how it works. I think they're actually being released this month uh, in oh. a uh, conference, so they're, they're not out. It's, we know it's some kind of deep learning neural network. It's an attention network, but basically mm -hmm. it's able to, um, based on all of the th hundreds of thousands of proteins we know of uh, in a public repo, it's um, predicting just on those, uh, on the amino acids, um, what the shape of the protein is going to be. So this is a huge leap forward for, yeah, that's, um, for biology. That's crazy. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a pretty good answer. I like that answer. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks. Philip, thank you for joining us. What was the most interesting data science thing that you learned in 2020? Uh, I think, so I used to do physics uh, a couple of years back, and I think one in very interesting thing, a paper I read was, there's uh, this intersection of using machine learning for physics, and this paper, they basically used machine learning to infer like actual physical models, for example, the gra gravitational um, function between like mass massive particles or massive planets. Uh, so in this case, they created a graphical neural network where they basically first simulated data using the actual formulas that you know. Then they uh, trained this on a graphical neural network. And a graphical neural network is basically when you have representations for each node, which would be the planets. Mm -hmm. You have these edges, which are basically functions which you train, where you take the representation of these pairwise uh, nodes and train the interaction between them and try to uh, try to match that to the simulation that you see. And they did that because if you want to infer these functions directly, it becomes very intractable because you have like very high dimensional data set. So instead what they do, they take this graphical network where they can train this generalizable uh, pairwise function uh, to get, uh, and then they also uh, regularize it with L1 to get it to a low dimensionality. And then when they have this, they have, they train this on the simulation, and then they actually have a function where, or a network where they can, based on this network, they can do symbolical regression, it's called, where if you fit these symbolical models or functions that you want to find on this network. So instead of fitting the, the symbolical regression directly on the simulations, you do this middle step to reduce the dimensionality on it. Mm -hmm. um, and then when they do that, they, can actually get like these fundamental equations. Huh. So they can infer, uh, yeah, like I said, the spring equation, the gravitational equation, and it's really cool at how close like they actually find it. I mean, for these traditional ones, you already know what the solution is, right? Of course, because it's yeah. been like known for hundreds of years, but the really cool thing is you can use this more complex systems where you don't really know what the equation is. So for example, an example they gave is they look at uh, dark matter systems where they just have observational data um, and they put this in and they can actually find these symbolical equations from through this method where it's, they actually don't even know yet what it is. And uh, the cool thing was when you compare it to what actual physicists have tried to predict just using traditional methods, their, um, their fit model actually empirically works better on the data they have observed, for example, for a dark matter observation, which is really cool. Interesting. Um, is, is the goal eventually kind of like physicists can kind of look at the the sort of equations that this predicts and maybe use this as a starting point or? Yeah, I think that's the idea to, Interesting. I mean, it's really hard because these are very unknown systems, right? You just see, it's very hard to see like yeah. 
what's actually going on. Yeah, so right, just by taking the data that you observe. definition, hard to see, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So you, you can use it as a starting point and then you can infer, okay, based on this equation that we find, what is actually happening in the system, what physical laws are, are interacting. And so it's really cool that you can use this to basically try to find these traditional symbolical equations from data where you don't really know what's going on in the first place. Yeah, that's really cool. Awesome, thank you. Ian, thank you for joining us on the podcast. What was the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2020? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. The coolest thing that I learned in 2020 isn't something from 2020 at all. It's something from, I don't know, 1960, something like that. All, that. Some of the best uh, new quote unquote data science tools that we end up having are really statistics or economics uh, tools that we had way back in the 60s and, and even earlier. So for me, um, I was made aware of uh, a practice, a, a methodology called regression discontinuity design, mm. um, which is a uh, semi or a quasi experimental uh, design um, used in economics often, where mm -hmm. one of the classic examples and, and actually one of the first usages of uh, regression discontinuity um, was on giving merit based scholarships mm. based off of grades. Um, so the thing is that every individual below a certain grade does not get a treatment and every individual above uh, a threshold, you know, say B plus uh, gets a merit-based scholarship award. And we want to know the causal effect of, mm -hmm. that, uh, of that treatment. Um, so this is cool because it, doesn't require us to assume a whole lot. Mm -hmm. It requires us basically to assume that, um, well, number one, that your outcome, so for instance, uh, maybe we're looking at life outcomes like income uh, on down the road. This is something you might learn in doing economics, experimental economics. Um, we have to assume that that outcome variable varies uh, continuously yep. with uh, the um, variable that decides the, the merit-based scholarship, mm -hmm. which is grade. Those who get uh, a B and a B plus, you know, those who are just hovering around the threshold for getting this merit-based scholarship are essentially from the same uh, yeah. random group and that, right. and that the treatment variable at, at that point is nearly uh, randomized. Right, right. So yeah, a continuity argument of their right. the neighborhood, right. Exactly. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, that's something that I, I think is very intuitive and um, very simple in, in concept, but uh, is really important as we at Clavio start to um, think more and more about causal effects of different variables, especially um, when we have so many variables and it's impossible to do, say, a B test for absolutely everything that we want to do. Yep. It's helpful to be aware of these uh, kind of classic economics style um, experimental designs to understand the causal effects of uh, certain variables. Absolutely, you're right. Tom, thank you for joining us. 
What was the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2020? Uh, so for me, I think it was uh, working with uh, transfer learning models, specifically um, related to natural language processing or NLP. Um, so I did this earlier in the in the year, um, and it was so really cool to learn more about them. And I can talk a bit of my understanding. Uh, mm -hmm. Also really cool to see how effective they are. NLP is a very difficult problem in general. Um, and there's a lot of like domain specific knowledge that's relevant. And then also depending on what sort of NLP you're doing, it might be that the language, you know, relevant to your problem is very different than language at large. And yet somehow Absolutely. these models, um, yeah, just like handle a wide variety of cases shockingly well, at least shockingly to me. So it was, it was really cool to see, yeah. it was cool to be able to implement them and like, you know, get a lot of pats on the back for using just this very powerful tool. Um, yeah, right. so we, we definitely that. feel that pretty intimately, the language being, I mean, as a data scientist, we probably use the word significant different from many people. And <laughs> honestly, as uh, as mathematicians, you, you probably use words as simple as or differently from most people. Yes, definitely. And, uh, you know, as mathematicians, a lot of, a lot of what we would do or what I've done in my past is like spend time getting very precise definitions of mm -hmm. things. And that's just not the case in general language. Things yep. just don't have precise definitions. Even if they do at one point, it changes over time. Yeah. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's very challenging. And um, yeah, it was very cool to be able to, to work on them. You know, I wanted to understand how it worked. So I had to understand sort of the transformer architecture, the attention mechanism that it used, which is like very cool to see. Um, it, it's a sort of thing um, I don't know how much detail we both want to go into here and how much I can go into in full honesty. Um, but yeah, we, we might have to save the full details for a full episode. Sure. Uh, where you look at it and it's not obvious that it's going to make this huge leap. It's, it seems like a reasonable thing to do. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, um, a, the sort of thing that's been attempted before. And yet somehow it all comes together, uh, in this yeah. really powerful way. And now part of that is like Google has this huge, you know, vast uh, wealth of resources that they course, can yeah. they can fit to a problem that like you and I couldn't just do on our laptops. But even apart from that, sort of the way they put it all together um, and, and the way it uh, ends up being so powerful, it was really cool to, to experience. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Chris, thank you for joining us. What was the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2020? course. Uh, thank you for having me. So for me, uh, I don't want to use the word cool or coolest. <laughs> I think that might be a little insensitive uh, given this example. But for me, the most interesting thing to mm -hmm. happen this year in data science wasn't any kind of technological breakthrough, uh, but rather a real world stress test of models and their underlying assumptions. Mm. So back in April, oil prices went negative for the first time ever. Wow. Ever in history. Uh, and so this caused a ton of havoc for big banks all over the world. They have these you know, standard models that they've used forever to price the risk and value of these sophisticated financial contracts. And so these models had always set $0 as the absolute lower bound of oil prices, really the, the prices of pretty much any asset. It so, seems reasonable most of the time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it did. It worked for a long time, uh, all the way up until April. But all it <laughs> took was this one sudden spike in real world volatility to show that the assumption 
actually wasn't grounded in reality. Wow. So the the chaos that ensued meant that banks had to completely reevaluate their pricing models to account oh. for negative prices. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just I think it's a fascinating example of the principle that just because something hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it won't happen in the future. And that's supposed to be the the single most basic tenant of prob probability. Mm -hmm. But just time and time again, uh, the world illustrates that human beings are really bad at internalizing that lesson. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. That's man, negative prices. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that. So I, I, I'm part of the problem is what I'm learning here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you, I, you would make more money by not having oil than you mm -hmm. would by having oil. Wow, that's, mm -hmm. that's crazy. Exactly. Or you would at least not lose money yeah. by, have, <laughs> by not having oil. Wild. Absolutely wild. Cool. Well, thank you. Of course. Thank you for having me. Oliver, thank you for joining us. What was the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2020? I would say one of the coolest things I learned this year is the effectiveness of pruning for neural net models. So one of the problems or potential problems with neural net models is that they get really, really big. Pruning is essentially you train a large scale model and the question is, okay, how do you basically compress the model? There are some methodologies for compressing the model so that it performs, generally it performs less well just because um, there's less parameters, but sometimes it performs even better. Mm -hmm. um, and there are many techniques in terms of how you do it. Um, often it follows a step of you train something to completion, you prune some things, you fine tune it, meaning you retrain, you prune some things until a certain, um, until a certain point, until you hit a certain size ratio that you're looking for. Um, and so that was pretty cool. Um, I think the other interesting part about pruning literature, though, is that mm -hmm. it's not very standardized. So interesting. Um, you have a lot of papers that sort of don't really talk about each other. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting because uh, it's hard then to compare them against one another because they're, you know, they're working with different architectures. Mm -hmm. They're starting with different models. Um, and so to sort of cap it all together, I was reading a sort of uh, aggregate pa synthesis paper, and it's basically saying, yeah, pruning is generally helpful, but finding just a better model is even more helpful, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, which is not a bad insight. All right, thank you very much. Yeah. Ezra, thank you for joining the podcast. What was the most interesting data science thing that you learned about in 2020? Hi, Michael. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Glad to be here. Uh, you know, 2020 will always be remembered as the year of the coronavirus, I think, for all of us. I'm pretty confident in saying that. Um, and hopefully the year, not one of the years. But, um, you know, I think I'm going to talk a little bit about um, sort of a, clinical research, that's not, not um, data science as we usually think about it, but uh, you know, in my past, I worked in the clinical trial process as a software vendor, so building software that helped run these studies. And you know, the studies are notoriously tricky to do right. 
um, notoriously slow to do right. Mm -hmm. um, and right, I think it's pretty incredible that, uh, I was reading an article about this, but right, since January, 2020, when the virus was sequenced, um, we now have 57 candidate vaccines um, and we have multiple phase three trials that are essentially done. Um, and that's right, generated so less than a year. Um, and I think that's pretty exciting uh, in terms of, you know, what human uh, initiative and collaboration, and I guess, mm -hmm. right, in the face of a very serious situation, um, the kinds of things that are possible. Agreed. Yeah, and I think you're right. It's it's not maybe what we usually talk about on the data science podcast, but it is science. It involves data. Data is core to the entire mission there. So, yeah, good reminder that the, the basic scientific principles are important, especially in uncertain times. Cool. Well, thank you. Thanks. Venusius, thank you for joining us. What was the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2020? Um, I believe that it was the importance of understanding under-specification in modeling in general. So that was a recent paper released by Google researchers uh, mm -hmm. where they explain some of the nuances of training a model and deploying it into the real world. So one problem that is well known and it's expected is the data shift. Mm -hmm. So you train your let's say a neural network to identify images. That's the classical example. Um, and you use a specific camera to do mm -hmm. all your data uh, sampling and training on that specific type of camera. And then you use a different type of camera to make the predictions uh, in the real mm -hmm. world. Um, so that's a data shift. And that's yeah. a, a well-known problem. There are ways around it. Um, but what they found, they discuss in this paper is, well, you can have the same neural network architecture with the same training and validation data sets with almost identical scores in training and in validation. Mm -hmm. And when you deploy the model, they perform widely different. Hmm. That's because you have too much slack in the definition of the problem. And that's why it's called the under-specification issue. And there's not really a great way around it other than yeah. training multiple models and creating like an assemble and hoping for the best. Yeah. And that raises questions like, okay, do I have to train five times GPT-3 or something like that? Like <laughs> it's already a huge model. Uh, mm -hmm. So. But, but if you're potentially going to miss out on a huge portion of the performance because you just didn't train the right version of a similar performing model that that's a shame too yes exactly and the crazy part is you can have let's say that one particular model performs well at night and the other mm. does not and the one that performs at night performs poorly on a dirty lens or something like that yeah um and you wouldn't know unless you actually deploy the model and that's like that has huge yeah. consequences. Say you are creating a model to put on a self-driving car and you don't yeah. know if it's going to perform well at night because it performed well in your training data set. Right. And it had night pictures, but like <laughs> that's, 
that's worrisome. There are very absolutely various implications of that problem. Uh, that well, was it's, a it's, very cool thing. This reminds me of uh, a thought exercise that I heard. So I didn't come up with this thought exercise. I heard this from Abigail Thorne. And the thought exercise basically goes, you give a neural net a bunch of images of dogs versus wolves. And you ask it to kind of predict, is this a dog? Is this a wolf? And then at a certain point, you give it, uh, you give it an image of a dog in the snow. And it says, oh, this is a wolf. And you say, what are you talking about? This is a dog. And it says, well, but there's a white background. Yeah, exactly. You were just, in this case, it's a clear example of data shift where you just train in the wrong data set. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens in the real world. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. huge issue. <laughs> yeah. Cool, thank you. Andrew, thank you for joining us. What was the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2020? So in 2020, I learned about this organization called Full Fact, which uses NLP, NLP techniques to um, aid in fact checking. The way they do that is they prioritize um, claim classification and also identifying the, uh, I guess, argument in a claim. So if uh, someone made a long-winded speech, they, the tools that Full Fact provides would go through highlight the key points they made and identify what type of claim are they making? Are they making a claim about a quantity or are they making a prediction about the future? Are they making a claim about the past? Now, some of those things can be fact-checked and some of those things cannot be fact-checked. Um, so identifying the differences between those are pretty important and it actually makes it a lot easier to do live fact-checking. So during a debate, uh, or during a speech, people need to know right away, yep. um, you know, what is being said? Is it true or is it not? People were only a relevant problem in 2020. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So this, they've been around for, um, a, a, a pretty long time now. Um, and they've been developing tools for, I think the past, uh, five or six years, hmm. but only recently did I learn about them. And I think it's in part because only recently has this been uh, um, an exceptionally, uh, I guess, talked about issue. Um, so a little bit about the, I guess, machine learning that they use. Um, they use something called a BERT style model. Mm -hmm. What you need to know about that is this is actually um, a model that was developed by Google, but mm -hmm. um, the key point is it basically takes the full context of uh, the statement for each word when, I guess, encoding each word. Mm -hmm. And that helps it better understand the actual deeper meaning behind each word. And that's why it's so effective at understanding, I guess, what type of claim is being made in yeah. uh, the, you know, whatever they're trying to fact check. Awesome. Thank you. Olaf, thank you for joining us. What was the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2020? Uh, thank you, Michael. So the cool thing I will mention doesn't have anything to do with any recent data science breakthrough. It's just something that I didn't know and was introduced mm -hmm. to. So at the start of the year, I was looking into various ways of creating automatic alarms for some of the systems and processes here at Clavio. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, during this work, I read up a lot about monitoring and alarm philosophy, which is something I was not uh, familiar with at all pretty much previously. And I came across the notion that most of the type of alarms that I was used to, uh, and that's the type of alarms where you set a static fixed threshold for what's considered mm -hmm. normal and what's considered abnormal, that these alarms are fairly primitive and that mm -hmm. they can often be improved on considerably by, by using more sophisticated approaches. Interesting. So yeah, in, in, in a very simple example, you could say that um, you can imagine an alarm that is triggered by like too many requests mm -hmm. piling up in a certain queue. And while yes, this might indicate a problem, uh, it might not be abnormal considering the number mm -hmm. of requests that are coming into the service. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so a static, a static approach there uh, risks triggering alarms for uh, in a place where the abnormality um, didn't occur. So it, it, right. will, it will point you in the wrong direction. But of course, it, it's hard to say for this imaginary example what the yeah. what the right way to implement the, an alarm would be. It it depends on the on the application of it. Yeah, it sounds uh, like this requires a lot of knowledge of the system. Uh, in yeah, general. yeah. Because like yeah. I guess in that particular example, you know, maybe it's maybe it potentially it's alarm worthy that so many requests are coming in in the first place. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and this could be. I mean, the root cause, that's, that's typically something you investigate when you, um, when you receive these alarms, mm -hmm. um, but with more sophisticated approaches, you should be able to, uh, get better alarms that point you in a, in a better direction so that you don't have to do as much investigation when you get them. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's a cool thing. Thank you. Of course. Thank you, Michael. Sofian, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. What was the most interesting data science thing that you learned in 2020? Sure. So um, this year I had the chance to work on an academic project in a machine learning and optimization class. And we decided to uh, focus our work on optimizing probation decisions and mm -hmm. in order to be able to uh, manage the recidivism rate which anchors. So mm -hmm. this comes from a simple observation, which is that in the United States, there is a huge amount huge amount of people who are held in prison. This mm -hmm. is a massive cost. And some studies have shown that it's not necessarily uh, the best way in order to reduce the recidivism on the long term. Absolutely. So we had access to a data set from a study in the 80s, which followed around 7,000 uh, felons who were released into probation and measured whether uh, they committed a crime or not. And they also, we also had some biographical records about them. So, uh, in a sense, we were we wanted to predict two things. First of all, whether someone would commit a crime or not, and how, what was his chance of committing a crime for every day after his probation in order perhaps to better manage this risk. So, in uh, the the data we had access to, uh, used several features. For example. Uh, sex, race, employment, the nature of the offense commented, and also some information on probation conditions. Since we wanted to be able to take the decision ex ante 
we did not use everything which was related to probation. So we had mm -hmm. approximately 13 variables. And finally, there was there's something which is very important in this case, which is avoid having some sort of built-in bias in the algorithm, which uh, is a- Definitely common... important for that kind of setting. Definitely, yeah. So if we first take a look immediately at the data, we notice that uh, there is a race which has a higher recidivism rate. So we want to have a model which it's not going to systematically exclude people from this race in order to artificially decrease the recidivism mm -hmm. rate. So we first, uh, we had a few criterion we wanted to follow. So we must have explainable predictions. We, you can't just come up to someone and say, uh, this person should not be put on probation without having a sound proof. Yep. Uh, trying to avoid false positives and false negative and be as accurate as possible, which makes mm -hmm. sense. We wanted to, uh, and finally, take into account this discrimination issue. So we used a variant of decision trees, mm -hmm. which was developed in our uh, by professors and PhD students of uh, the, the class I was taking, which is essentially just basically a more powerful version of decision trees, which it comes closer to XGBoost. Cool. Sounds good. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you. Julian, thank you for joining us. What was the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2020? So something I'm really interested in is the ethics and particularly privacy around machine learning models. And within that field, there's a recent development. It was invented before 2020, but I learned about it in 2020 called differential privacy. The idea is if you have some data set and you're trying to train a model on it, you're revealing information about everyone in your data set. And sometimes that's bad for them. If you're training a model, you, you run some medical study, let's say on people who have had a specific type of cancer, mm -hmm. you train a model to try and predict other people. Like this is a good thing. We want to have models that can predict uh, cancer or predict likelihood of cancer so that we can treat those people earlier. Yeah, absolutely. But we want to also make sure that people want to be in the data sets that are used to create those models. So if you have a model trained on a data set of people who have had cancer, and it's easy to discover from your model who was in the training data set, you might reveal information about those people that they don't want to be revealed. For instance, their insurance rates might go up or they might be discriminated against in other ways. So the idea behind differential privacy is you can set a, a fixed constant, they call it epsilon because computer scientists love Greek letters. And epsilon is a great letter, I understand it. Great letter. Uh, you say, we want to make it so that joining this data set makes it so that you're only one plus epsilon times worse off than if you weren't in it. The idea is the data set by itself will have a lot of information about people. Mm -hmm. And you joining the, the data set, we want to make it so that you joining is minimal cost to you. And if we can bound it mathematically, we know how much money we'd have to pay you in order to make sure that you're always better off to join our study. I like that. It's a, yeah. it's, it's a win-win both for the people running the study and for the people joining it. Yeah, exactly. It helps people running studies know how much money they should be offering people, and it helps people joining studies know what they should be expecting. So differential privacy, the core idea again is you have some epsilon and you can mathematically prove that people joining your, your data set that you're training a model on are only one plus epsilon times worse off. Interesting. That's a cool idea. We might have to dig into ideas around data privacy more in a future episode, but I think that's a nice intro. Thanks, Julian. Yeah, no worries. Nick, thank you for joining us. What was the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2020? Hey, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so I wanted to talk about the results of the annual Kaggle data science survey. 
And just to set this up a little, so the website Kaggle puts out a survey every year and asks people in the industry um, a lot of different questions, including things about like their work environment, their day-to-day -day activities as a data scientist, the technologies and, technologies and methodologies they use, and um, really a broad range of topics. There are usually about 50 questions, and this year they got about 20,000 respondents, so I thought it would be a really cool thing to dig into, and I'll only scratch uh, the surface of uh, the results in this conversation today, so I would encourage anybody listening to go check out those results. So one of the first big topics they asked about was programming languages, so unsurprisingly, most respondents said that their top two programming languages are Python and R, but really what caught shocked. my eye- Completely shocked. Yes, exactly. Uh, what I thought was interesting though was the trends between the responses in 2018 and now. Um, and in particular in 2018, about 80% of respondents reported using Python regularly. And now that number is all the way up to 92%. And wow. I thought that was a really interesting increase uh, the proportion of users using R is actually staying pretty constant. So maybe mm -hmm. people are relying on both, but it totally makes sense. I think in the past couple of years, the number of resources for machine learning and data analysis in Python has really improved. And mm -hmm. I would encourage anybody not already looking to go check out what's going on in the Python world. The next thing I thought was interesting was uh, the responses to the question of which of the following ML algorithms do you use on a regular basis? And I think there's a common belief that uh, you know, with uh, deep learning on the rise, that people are maybe moving away from classical methods. But for the third year in a row, actually, the number one answer given was linear and logistic regression, uh, followed by things like decision trees, random forests, and gradient boosting. So, um, interesting. It shows that people are not uh, necessarily moving away from those more traditional methods. And mm -hmm. as we've talked about, actually, on our team at Clavio, uh, there's a lot to be said about interpretability of these models. And, Absolutely. Um, certainly not throwing them by the wayside just yet. Well, and there's something to be said about simplicity too. I mean, if you can fit a, simplicity and speed both, if you can fit a model that fits in microseconds and gives you a reasonable degree of accuracy, sometimes that's all you need. Of course, yeah. Awesome, we'll be sure to uh, include a link to the full results if you wanna dig into this as well, but uh, thanks for coming on, Nick. Absolutely. Charlie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. What was the coolest data science thing that you learned about in 2020? So the coolest data science thing that I learned about in 2020, um, and I don't know if this is a, this might sound like a weird answer, but for me, it was um, kind of the math and nuance behind attribution models. So- wow, what a weird answer. How dare you bring an answer that weird to this podcast? Thank you. That's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this kind of started when we built um, what's called the quarterly growth report tool, which mm -hmm basically automatically goes through someone's account and pulls a bunch of data that describes sort of their marketing performance on Klaviyo over the last quarter. Um, we first built this working with CSMs. Um, we then uh, released this to our agency partners and talked a lot with them about sort of how they think about performance and what they would want in a tool like this. Um, and a lot of questions came up around, you know, how much do, how do I know how much impact my marketing is actually having? Mm -hmm. um, and especially when we talk to agencies that work across multiple channels, they would say, oh, you know, I look at attribution numbers in Klaviyo, but I might also look at other things like Google Analytics, or I might look at the attribution in other channels that I work with, like Facebook or Instagram or uh, whatever other channel. And um, from there, I sort of thought, like, this is actually really interesting and sort of difficult. So I went into a bit of a math rabbit hole, and I, I found kind of a bunch of interesting stuff about how people think about it, how 
what math, what models are available, what you can quantify and what you really can't. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's been the most interesting thing I learned this year. Interesting. Any, any high level takeaways that you've gotten from that, looking into that sort of thing? Yeah. So I think, I guess, first of all, it's a really tough problem, right? So the basic question, you know, let's say I, as a marketer, I'm responsible for a pretty wide range of marketing campaigns across a wide range of different channels. So, you know, maybe I have email, social, um, search, something out, banner ads, you know, print ads mm -hmm. even. Yep. Um, and I'm trying to figure out which, and then within those, right, there's each specific ad that I, or, or specific mm -hmm. ad or campaign or flow or whatever that I've done. Um, you know, and on top of that, there's just all the other things that are going on in the world, right? Maybe I, you know, was on Shark Tank one week, or then maybe, yep. you know, I have a seasonal business, so things are changing. And so how, given all that, like, how do I know how effective each of those things are? How do I, how do I compare? How do I make decisions? That's an extremely hard, kind of impossibly hard question. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's the big takeaway. And then the other takeaway is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of different math that you can use to try to get at that. Um, that can be interesting in different ways. Um, so the first big thing is just sort of rules-based attribution models. Yep. Um, and that's, I think the, for a lot of people, the best place to start. So that's basically saying what's the, you know, attributing something based on, you know, what's the last click before somebody bought or the first click, if you're, if you're looking at acquisition, um, or trying to figure out which purchases are relevant, you know, did I click through and buy this product or did I buy another product or are keywords connected or something? Um, there's also methods called Shapley values, which take inspiration mm -hmm. from game theory. Um, that help you look at if certain ad, the combination of certain ads was impactful. Mm -hmm. um, there's also time series models, which will show you does um, you know that how do you how do you think about sort of time time effects and uh, mm -hmm. factor that out and look at sort of the again the combination of different ad portfolios. Um, yeah. There's also Markov chain models, which sort of like the game theory ones will show does a certain sequence of mm -hmm. ads lead to a conversion, um, and then. Most importantly, and you know about this, is experimental evidence. Um, so test, yeah, test Very what you can. my heart, yeah. Yeah. Um, and what was interesting was like looking at different ways that you can combine, make some combination of these, these things mm -hmm. to sort of make sense of the world. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you. But wait, Michael, what's, um, what's your answer? I'm glad you asked, Charlie. I think the coolest data science thing that I learned about this year actually comes from the world of, I'm worried, I think the audience is going to learn that I'm a nerd when I tell them this. It comes from the word of crowdsourcing high-speed computing to help people play video games faster. In particular, there's a, a group of people that are putting together a what's called a tool-assisted speedrun for the game Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door. A tool-assisted speedrun uses safe states and kind of computer inputs to do things faster than a human ever could, and in theory, achieve the fastest possible time in a game. In Paper Mario Thousand Year Door 100%, one of the things you need to do for that category is there's a list of 57 recipes you have to cook with a certain NPC. Each of these recipes requires items. Some of the recipes that you cook require earlier recipes as inputs or can take earlier recipes as inputs. So there's a whole bunch of different conditions that you can that can make you take a longer or shorter time total. Um, some of those are if you have to use two uh, items in the recipe, then first of all, you have to select both of those and scrolling through your menu to select both of them can take a different number of frames. If you 
have to use two items versus one, it takes extra time to select that second item and just the animation to cook the item takes longer. So you might think, oh, that means you should just optimize by having the fewest number of recipes that can use one ingredient versus two ingredients. You should have the fewest number use two ingredients as, as you possibly can. And the answer is yes, except that might mess with the number of items that you have in your inventory that you need to make a different item or something along those lines. Uh, there's also, obviously, if you need certain ingredient, like certain cooked recipes to make other cooked recipes, there is a sequencing problem here. So the, a group of people, uh, the main one is Malio. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and send a link to a video explaining this whole process in the show notes, but they have an entire uh, tree graph set up uh, that they are, they're using kind of a random search through this tree graph to discover what is the shortest possible total time. And because none of them have a supercomputing cluster, they actually have a GitHub library set up where you can, uh, in the same way that you might donate some of your CPU time while you're not using your computer to find new prime numbers or, uh, or help find protein folding solutions, you can use it to help discover the fastest possible path through the 57 recipes that you are required to cook to fill out the Tasty cookbook for the tool-assisted speedrun for, for Paper Mario, the Thousand Year Tour. Um, to overall, they estimate, probably save about 10 seconds total. <laughs> that is the exact right kind of extra that we look for. I love it, yeah. I, I love that you have this extremely sophisticated method that actually requires a fair amount of data science expertise and a fair amount of computer science expertise and all of that, that we've reached the point in human civilization where you can apply that to playing video games fast. That's awesome. All right, and that is it for this month. I hope you enjoyed this uh, atypical format for the episode. If you liked it, go ahead and leave a comment. Let us know that you liked it. If you didn't like it, go ahead and leave us a comment, let you know you didn't like it. Uh, either way, thank you for joining us this month. This podcast, as always, is sponsored by Clavio. If you're interested in learning more about Clavio, uh, where our mission is to empower creators to own their own growth, then you can visit us at clavio.com. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com. If you like the podcast, feel free to subscribe. We are available to subscribe on just about every podcast distribution network. If you are interested in contacting me because you have any questions, comments, or concerns, the best place to reach me is my Twitter. That handle is at Lawson underscore M underscore T. That's at L-A-W-S-O-N underscore M underscore T. And be sure to look at the show notes this month. We talked about a lot of topics during this episode, and many of them have some sort of follow-up link where you can learn more. Be sure to check that out below. And as always, have a great month. <laughs>